Okay. Hey everybody, it's me Tom, your favorite Mamby Pamby Mormon. I wanted to read some uh, fan mail here. Dear Mormon Expression, Love your show. Is there a way I can maybe get my voice on the show? Well, faithful listener, you'll be pleased to know the Mormon Expression is holding our first annual essay contest. Rules are simple. All you need to do is record your personal essay that has something or anything to do with Mormonism. Entries need to be no longer than 10 minutes in length, and and they're all due by July 1st. And of course, the winning essay will be awarded $100. Each submission will be combined into a personal essay show, and then released as an official Mormon Expression podcast. All you need to do to enter is to send your digital recording in any format to mail at mormonexpression.com. Alright, next letter here. Dear Mormon Expression, I hate all of this online bullshit. Is there a way to actually meet people and to talk to real people, you know, in real life? Well, <laughs> Mormon Expression is also holding our first annual live podcast reception. It will be held on Friday, August 6th at the University of Utah in the Student Union Building in the Crimson View Room. Doors will open at 6.30 p.m. and the recording starts at 7. We'll have refreshments and we'll also have some awesome door prizes as well. But, be aware, space is limited, so you'll need to purchase and reserve your tickets by going to mormonexpression.com or email us at mail at mormonexpression.com. Hope we got all you fans covered. Welcome to Mormon Expression. My name is Seth Lay. I'm your guest host for this episode of Mormon Expression. I'm here with uh, Jonathan, otherwise known as Cinepro on the boards. Hello, it's great to be here. And Lauren, also known as The Dude on a couple of boards. Hey, all. It's nice to be back. And, of course, John Larson, the, the, the primary host of Mormon Expression. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for uh, coming on. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the uh, the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, written by Jared Diamond. And I have in mind to have a conversation about the book itself, but more so about just uh, how the book relates to Mormonism, religion in general, how the genre of history books about the, the prehistory and the history of human civilization uh, impacts on Mormonism and religion in general, and so forth. Um, let me give a quick introduction to the book. Uh, basically, this book by Jared Diamond is about how it is that some, uh, some civilizations developed technology spread around the globe and conquered other civilizations. And he basically gives us his premise that it was the availability of uh, domesticatable plants and animals, uh, location, 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 just like the, the, the old businessman's maxim, um, and, and so forth, and, that, and not 
anything innately to do with like the genetics of the people involved. So the book begins with Yali, uh, a tribesman in New Guinea, asking Jared Diamond why it is that it was the Europeans who showed up in New Guinea rather than the New Guineans who spread out and took the rest of the world over, and the whole book just sort of develops from there. Um, did any of you guys want to make any comments about that? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting that uh, Yali, the, his friend in New Guinea, had this question, and, and Dr. Diamond addressed it from the point of view of genetics, that, you know, that is what he's going to argue against, that it's not about the white Europeans being superior, but it's really about geography and starting conditions. Um, thinking about it from uh, more of a religious point of view, and especially from a biblical or a Mormon point of view, I think the religious explanation is that there's God's chosen people. And that is what has allowed some civilizations to become dominant over others, um, or at least, you know, God has some great hand in it all. Um, and so that's sort of the other perspective to think about uh, as, as we talk about the book. And as I read the book, that's something I thought about. Interesting. Um, I do have to respond with, uh, well, maybe God set it up so that his chosen people happened to be in the area with the most domesticatable plants and animals and so forth. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, just putting on my apologist hat for a moment, uh, maybe God rigged the starting conditions so that Yali's people never had a chance. Well, but the problem there is that in Mormonism, at least, the promised land is North America. Um, and from Jared Diamond's perspective, the promised land is Eurasia. And I think that, you know, the white Europeans are the ones who dominated. It wasn't anybody who lived in North America for thousands of years. So when you say that the promised land was Eurasia, according to Jared Diamond, uh, what do you mean by that? Like what, what things were available in Eurasia that allowed, allowed people emanating from that region to, to dominate the world? Well, he uh, he gives lots of evidence in the book that that is where most of the domestica domesticatable plants and animals uh, existed. You know, that's where horses, pigs, sheep, goats, um, wheat, barley, um, you know, all the major grains. Basically, it all comes from Eurasia. Um, and a lot other continents really were lacking in those basic starting materials. And because they had those things in Eurasia, they were able to rapidly develop large civilizations with huge populations, which gave them opportunities to develop technologies. Um, also, those the fact that they had all of those animals, herd animals, um, that's where major diseases came from, plagues like smallpox and cholera. Those come from close interactions with animals. And that's why when uh, the Europeans went to places like North America, they were armed with diseases that wiped those people out. Um, you know, inadvertently, that was uh, a major factor in allowing them to take over uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um, a lot of other lands. I think that's an important point. I want to circle back a little bit on the the rise of civilization, which is if you lived in a place that had abundant, you know, fruit and, and everything you wanted, you were in paradise. Um, it seems that society never really, never really flourished because people. And when I say society, I'm talking about 
progress, like mathematical progress and architectural progress and that sort of thing. There had to be an excess of resources in order to have that sort of priestly class that was free from the trudgery of day-to-day labor. And it, uh, Diamond argues that that happened in the Fertile Crescent first, and um, that gave rise to the, the seedbed of our civilization. Yeah, I think one of one of ahead, the man. most interesting uh, you know aspects of the book is you know it's fairly comprehensive in its discussion of civilizations you know rising and falling and interacting with other civilizations, and it never even hints that righteousness and wickedness are somehow correlated with the success of a civilization, which is obviously you know if you ask a, a traditional LDS. For their view, it's, you know, the, the cycle of righteousness and prosperity leads to pride and wickedness, destruction and suffering, and then humility and repentance leads back to righteousness and prosperity. Well, you know what? That doesn't really work that way. It's more like, you know, pigs and cows and sheep, germs lead to resistance, you know, and it, it's more like that. And, uh, you know, it, it's just... Uh, a, a totally different view of these things. Yeah, exactly. Um, just uh, actually, I want to go back a little bit. I want to back up just a little bit and sort of talk about the history of the population of the of the world, sort of as it's outlined in the book and also in, in other like secular histories of, of of the world. So we know that human beings were supposed to have arisen in Africa, right? Probably a couple hundred thousand years ago or, you know, as, as ancestral species going back millions of years. Um, do we know exactly what time frame we moved up into, let's say, the Fertile Crescent and east into Asia, sort of northwest into Europe and so forth? Um, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like twenty or 30,000 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I I think that that well, it's, it's actually earlier than that. I think that we had uh, human beings had reached uh, Europe by something like sixty thousand years ago. Um, I do recall that human beings actually reached um, Australia about forty thousand years ago, and human beings are, are are supposed to have reached the American continents by about what twelve to fourteen thousand years ago. So we have this earliest out of Africa, up into the Middle Middle East, for, up into uh, Europe, into China, down to Australia, over to the American continent, through the uh, Isles of the Pacific and so forth, to the point where pretty much all the continents except for Antarctica had been populated by, you know, 12 to 14,000 years ago. Um now, <laughs> obviously, this this leads to some problems that I want to discuss in a little in a little while, having to do with you know biblical history and so forth. But uh, anyway, <sighs> Lauren, I know you have some ideas about how the book Guns, Germs, and Steel relates to the view of the Book of Mormon held by what we like to call Chapel Mormons. Um, would you like to get into that a little bit? Well, so I read this book when it first came out, which was probably about 12 or 13 years ago, um, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and at the time, I had not interacted uh, all that much with online apologists. 
Um, so to me, I, I read the book kind of from the perspective of a traditional Mormon believer, although I was no longer a traditional Mormon believer, that was the Mormonism I knew. Um, and so to me, it basically demolished that worldview. Um, you know, the traditional Mormons who believe that there was Adam and Eve and then there was Noah's Ark with a global flood that wiped out all of human society. And then there was the Tower of Babel. And that's where, you know, languages originated. And then the first humans left the Middle East around that time and came to Asia. That was the people of the Jaredites. Or they came to the Americas. That was the people of the Jaredites. Um, and, you know, and, the, and things sort of went from from there on, really, this book, uh, Jared Diamond's book, demolishes that point of view without even meaning to. You know, he doesn't have anything directly to say about religion. I don't think he says a single word about um, traditional religions and how there's a conflict between the Bible and what he has to say. He's really just laying it out using so many different um you know, scientific and scholarly sources to to make his case. Um, and so, you know, that's the way I read it. And I thought, wow, you know, I think um, if, if, if a traditional Mormon were to pick up this book, basically they wouldn't be able to finish it. Uh, if they did finish it, their, you know, that proverbial shelf where they put their doubts would be overflowing with things they would not be able to resolve because there are so many conflicts between what science has to say about where humans came from and how we came to be what we are and what um, traditional Mormonism has taught since the time of Joseph Smith. Yeah, now exactly. I, Go ahead. You know, I, I, now, you know, since I have become pretty uh, familiar with what uh, apologists have to say, um, I realize now that they have sort of worked themselves into a position where they can deal with just about anything you throw at them. And they do this um, by changing the scope of what if you're just talking about the book of mormon and how how native american civilizations developed they have basically changed the scope of the book of mormon so it can be as small as they need it to be so that it does, makes no predictions about what we should find in archaeology and the other thing that they do that gives them complete um immunity from jared diamond's book is joseph smith can be wrong about anything that they need him to be wrong about and he's still a prophet so, so what if he thought that the Book of Mormon explained where Native Americans came from? He was wrong. Jared Diamond's right. Um, and they can basically escape – if things related to book, the Book of Mormon, they can escape pretty easily. I think when it comes to more ancient things, especially, you know, where humans came from, evolution, uh, Adam, I think in those areas they're still, they're still pretty confounded when you get right down to it. Actually, um, I think that, you know, if we go back and look at the Book of Mormon, let's, let's start from the beginning here for a moment. Uh, his, I, I mean, chronologically speaking, from the beginning, not, not necessarily in, in order that they appear in the Book of Mormon. But chronologically, the Jaredites were the earliest people to come across in the Book of Mormon, right? right. And what does it say in the Book of Mormon that they brought with them? It says that they brought with them flocks and herds and... Bees. Plants and whatnot. What's that? And bees. And bees. And bees. Uh, does, does it specifically mention uh, in the book of Ether uh, wheat and barley? Uh, mentions machinery. But mentions uh, Seth, before we go on that, I, there's one thing I want to underline about the central thesis for for those who might not have read the book. 
Um, what Diamond does very clearly is lays out that there is a clear progression of events that occur. You know, for example, you're not going to have um, a, a culture of being able to make steel tools or steel weaponry until you develop the ability to get your ovens hot enough, until you develop the ability to, you know, mine the iron ore, and that those who domesticated animals had to develop sort of the, the immunity to being able to live close to, to animals and all that stuff. So I, I think that there's this central premise that actually is quite devastating to the to to the argument of the Book of Mormon that that there were these things that had to have happened, and I, I think you know I, to go back to where you were just talking when we talked about the Jaredites, um, what the authors of the Book of Mormon do is they take a lot of that stuff out of order and start arguing for things that um, I think Diamond clearly showed had to happen in a distinct order for civilization to progress and couldn't have been taken out of order. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, one of the root questions is going to be, you know, does the Book of Mormon describe, like, if, if there were people here in the New World, would the arrival of the Book of Mormon peoples have been like a disruptive event? Would it have been a game changer and just really shaken things up? Um, and I think the, you know, the Book of Mormon itself describes it that way. I mean, that's assuming there were people here at all. I don't think the Book of Mormon describes there, there being people here. Maybe that's another discussion. But I think the, the core of the apologetic argument is that it wasn't a disruptive event, that shortly after they made landfall, they pretty much, you know, forgot everything they knew in the old world about, you know, steel and horses and wheels and anything that would have given them an advantage or made them different. And they just kind of, integrated with the people and other than making them all pre-christian they just kind of disappeared and uh so that's the apologetic argument but you know i don't think that's what the church teaches i don't think it's what the book of mormon itself teaches but that's how it's resolved right actually i do want to go back to what john started to bring up here Let, let's it, i think it is important that we do go back and discuss what is it about the production of food that enabled pretty much everything that came after that, okay? So Jared Diamond discusses that in a hunter-gatherer society, pretty much everybody in the society has to be involved in gathering or hunting food. There's, there's very little excess to be shared with others. And because they're always on the move, they can't really store food either, so they pretty much are limited to what they can kill or gather every day and maybe, you know, a couple days supply or something like that that they can carry with them, but they pretty much can't store up food, and especially with meat and stuff anyway, unless you, you know, you dry it or smoke it or something like that. It's not like it's very storable anyway, so most of the stored food ends up being in the form of grains and stuff, which hunter-gatherers aren't gathering. So when you get to uh, food production, you go, I, I remember this statistic that was uh, in the book, it was 10 to 100 times more calories produced by one farmer in a farming society, between 10 and 100 times more calories per person as what a hunter-gatherer could gather. So that's an awful lot of calories to go around. Um, I remember reading in the book that once you have a society where they have discovered food production with a domesticatable crop and they become sedentary, 
you can have more people because you can support more people food-wise, and you can shorten the, the, the birth interval because people on the move can't carry a large family of little kids with them. They can only carry one or two kids with them, and that's it. So there's a limit to how fast you can reproduce, and they haven't got anywhere to store it. Once they become sedentary and start producing food, not only can you uh, store a surplus, but you can also have kids faster. You can support more people because you have more food per unit of uh, of territory farmed. Go ahead. Well, hey, uh, so Seth, you know, in, in coming into this and thinking about things that you had said in emails beforehand and where I was coming from, I realized that I was probably going to be playing devil's advocate here and there in the, in the recording of the podcast. Um, now, when you're talking, when you're laying out these facts, uh, what do you what are you wanting me? What are you wanting us to think about? Are you talking about the Jaredites coming and interacting with hunter gatherers or, or or what? I mean, the people in in Central America, they had a it wasn't the same type of agricultural based society, but they had some agriculture. And here come the Jaredites or the Lehites, and they're bringing their own other type of agriculture. I mean, what's the conflict? Was well, okay. So if we go to the Middle East, we have what grains? We have wheat and barley. We have horses, cattle, sheep and goats and pigs, right? Right. You go over to the American continent, and what do we see? Okay, and Jared Diamond actually lays this out in the book. There's there's charts and tables that actually show you when different food crops were domesticated and how fast they moved across the continent and they actually have evidence that says that, you know, starting, you know, 2000 years ago or whatever down in Mexico, they started, uh, domesticating corn and it took X number of years for, for that corn production to move all the way up into, let's say, the northeastern United States. I know. Um, so, so, so when Lehi and people came over, they pretty much were going to have to start eating corn and squash and beans. Um, because that's what the people in, you know, that's what the people here had, and that's what archaeology says was available and what was actually produced by the people. So the Book of Mormon has some little flubs. Those are just anachronisms. Explain it how you will. Joseph Smith was, you know, using his own words and substituting for what was really on the gold plates or whatever. Um, you know, I can't apologists do that? Well, I think certainly one of the clearest uh, contradictions is going to be in First Nephi, where Nephi says that they went into the wilderness and the the new land, and they found cows and ox and horses and goats and wild goats and all manner of wild animals which were for the use of men. So that would indicate that you know they they're claiming that there were these domesticated mammals that. Uh, that they found that were already here, which and, and, is uh, not what Jared Diamond is saying. That's for well, sure. And, you know, one <laughs> of the ahead. most actually one of the most interesting things about Jared Diamond's case is how he describes what it takes to domesticate an animal, and it really makes it laughable the idea that they could have domesticated tapirs. You know, <laughs> if if tapirs could be domesticated, they would have been domesticated. People would have done that. They would have probably tried it a thousand times over, just like they tried to domesticate zebras. The reason zebras aren't domesticated is they can't be. And the same goes for tapers, right? Well, and yeah, I, exactly. I think there's, some, ahead, there's something else that um, Diamond mentions that's probably even a little bit more um, 
devastating to the to the arguments of the Book of Mormon. And we know that, you know, when Cortez and, and the other explorers landed, the the biggest devastation they brought was not their swords and not their um not their horses or whatever. It was smallpox and um, and whatever else they were hauling around. Um, and we know that from the contacts in North America, you know, when uh, when the the white explorers first came, they would come back a year or two later and find complete cities and complete villages wiped out. And um, Diamond argues for that, saying that those who had domesticated animals had co-evolved with them so that they were immune to the to the diseases that the animals have. If the Book of Mormon had happened the way that it, it, it says uh, now, now I think. Let's be clear. The traditional Chapel Mormon view is that there was nobody else there. Um, that the and that's what, in my mind, the Book of Mormon argues that only the people that God brings over will be brought over. When the Nephites came, they found nothing. The apologists say they found the existing populations. Well, the Nephites would have wiped out the existing populations in the same manner. They would have brought they would have brought the domesticated animal diseases over, and there would have been a devastating impact on the existing civilizations, which would have impacted that idea that they were just absorbed. Exactly. In fact, the, uh, I guess the apologists might come back and just say, well, you know, they're just like none of the people happened to have any of the sicknesses which were able to go and wipe out the Native uh, Americans. None of the animals that they brought with them happened to have any of those things. Well, we're talking about three different populations of people, right? We're talking the Lehites, the Mulekites, and the Jaredites. All each group of which had, you know, several families of, of individuals and flocks and herds and seeds and all kinds of other stuff. And it's, it just sort of strains credibility, the idea that these three groups of people and three different groups of animals could show up and not wipe out the natives that were here, just like the Europeans did. Um, it seems that wherever the Europeans landed, as you pointed out, somebody had a cold or the flu, or, you know, some form of pox or whatever that just went through and just wiped people out. So why didn't the peoples of the Book of Mormon wipe anybody out? Well, well but Seth, you know, I think the apologists could use that, and they could say it did. That's why the Book of Mormon says they came to an empty land, because the Book of Mormon people brought diseases with them, and they didn't, they didn't understand, you know, germ theory. But what happened is the diseases wiped out the people around them, and for, it looked to them like they were in an empty land. Uh, the unfortunate the, – the only reason that argument doesn't work is if that had been the case, then when the Europeans had come, you know, uh, a thousand years later, it wouldn't have had the devastating impact because then they would have had the immunities uh, that came from the flocks of, and herds that they brought with them. So. No, well, I think those immunities would only continue to exist if they were continually selected for. And if there were generations where people were not exposed to herd animals, that immunity would be lost rather quickly. So um, I actually don't think that's a problem. What I do think is a problem, though, is that if the uh, Nephites or Jaredites lived for many generations without intermingling with other populations, what they would have done was created a large, genetically pure society, and we would expect to find that in DNA somewhere. Uh, I think that I think the DNA forces apologists to uh, propose that very quickly there was interme intermingling with native populations. 
And which, which I think, if I understand you correctly, uh, um, Lauren, what you're saying is there's evidence that the Book of Mormon peoples couldn't have wiped out the natives because the apologists need for the natives to have basically swallowed up the, the Lehites in order to hide their genetic signature. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah, that's kind of that's what I'm saying. So the apologists can't argue that, well, the Lehites did come and wipe everybody out with diseases because then it would have been all Lehites and no natives and you wouldn't have had this sort of limited, you know, uh, limited genetic impact theory or whatever you want to call it. Well, they couldn't argue it in the same post, but uh, I'll bet they would argue (laughs) it in different posts. (laughs) As necessary. (laughs) Exactly. That's pretty funny. Um well, and of course, oh. we, we should acknowledge that, I mean, they can bring any sort of miracle in at any time they want, so. Um. Yeah, they could say that, well, God gave all their animals a priesthood blessing and they carried no diseases. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, um, actually, there's a certain argument that I want to, uh, that I want to approach, and, and let's discuss it, and, and if someone wants to play devil's advocate on this, then, then go ahead, because we're kind of stacked here with critics. And uh, we want to give both sides a good airing to the best of our ability. Um, if the Book of Mormon is correct in saying that they brought horses and cattle and sheep and all these other things, then let's discuss what kind of impact we would expect to see on the American continent as a result of those animals. Um, go, go ahead. Was that I, Jonathan? I will, uh, yeah. Yeah, I will be the devil's avocado, and uh, I will say that we should expect to see no impact on the new world. And eh, you're wrong. <laughs> church is <laughs> yeah, false. Just, just to be, yeah, just to be clear, um, the the wording in uh, in First Nephi it says that like they found the animals when they got here, so it's not even really saying they brought them. And, and that's actually used as an argument for why there must have been other people in the Americas. And actually, let me skip ahead for just one moment. We have in Third Nephi. Actually, I want to read a verse out of the Book of Mormon here. It's Third Nephi six one, and the reason why is because Jonathan just pointed out that according to the Book of Mormon, they found some of these animals when they got here, and we know that Third Nephi was six hundred years later. So I'm going to establish sort of a period of time in which we know that these animals had to have been around and discuss what kind of impact that would be. Um, this is Third Nephi uh, 6, verse 1. And now it came to pass that the people of the Nephites did all return to their own lands in the twenty and sixth year, every man with his family, his flocks and his herds, his horses and his cattle, and all things whatsoever did belong unto them. So there we know from at least First Nephi all the way up to Third Nephi, and remember, Third Nephi is when Jesus comes back, so we're talking over 600 years later. We know that there had to have been horses and cattle. Um, I want to discuss what was the impact of horses and cattle, um, according to the book Guns, Germs, and Steel, in conjunction with a uh, population which had um, invented food production. What benefits did having horses and cattle give those populations. Does anyone have any any, any comments on that? Uh, well, the horses provided, um, you know, m- military advantages and also could be used to 
you know, plow fields, which massively uh, improves the efficiency of farming. Uh, cattle, similarly, for could be used to pull plows. Plus, you know, you can get milk, you can get meat from cattle. I think an important point from Jared Diamond's book is that, you know, natural selection occurs among civilizations. And if a segment, uh, if a tribe adopts certain um, advantageous techniques, they will, they will succeed and they will outpopulate and conquer other tribes. And so I think if those animals were ever present in the Americas and established for more than a generation, they would have spread and allowed those tribes to dominate. There's no way they would have just evaporated and disappeared. Yeah, I'm exactly. Not- exactly. You know, that's, that's really sort of the biggest point of this entire podcast that I, w- that I wanted to get across, which was we know that in the Book of Mormon, they list flocks and herds and, and cattle and horses over many, many hundreds of years. And as you just said, Lauren, any civilization that had that technology that was producing food that had horses and cattle would either spread those technologies through dominating their neighbors or the neighbors would actually adopt those technologies as well. And that over the course of hundreds of years, you would have expected for things like horses and cattle, which gave just unbelievable advantages, not only in terms of the, the, the efficiency of food production, because you could cultivate ground that was too hard to till by hand, um, with plows and stuff for transport purposes. You could actually, uh, start trading by, by carrying huge burdens on the back of cows and horses and stuff, rather than just what a person can carry on their back. Just the, the technological, the economic advantages, the military advantages, the agricultural advantages, were just so great that it's just inconceivable to me that they could ever have had horses and cattle and all and everything else and not have that come to dominate the continent. Um, all right, go well, ahead, John. Uh, I will. I will argue based on uh, on my extensive time uh, online and also playing Age of Empires that that, <laughs> that is true everywhere except in the uh, Mesoamerican jungles and uh, topography with the mountain regions, that horses wouldn't uh, give them that big of an advantage and they would be most useful as a limited food supply, kind of a reserve um, that would most likely be uh, held by the royalty, the kings and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the chiefs of the tribes. And uh, uh, other than that, not, not much you know, use in riding them or you know, having them pull a plow. Actually, um, <laughs> just based on the book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, we have the, 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 the counterexample of King Atahualpa, the, uh, the emperor of the, was that the Incas? I, th- I believe it was the Incan emperor, and that's in Peru. We're talking some pretty mountainous territory. And Cortez and his 160 or so Spaniards with their horses just ride right up and, and take them over. And, and these people had never seen those before. They didn't know how to respond to guys on horses with sharp pointy things. And, uh. Well, I think they were just waiting to eat the horses. They, I, I don't think they were expecting <laughs> anything more than that. But, I mean, the Spaniards didn't... Uh, anyone from farms, you can uh, just make the checkout directly to me. And- <laughs> <laughs> but listen, you know, the Spaniards came and they established horses in Mesoamerica, didn't they? Or, or did they send back to Spain every time they needed a new horse? No, they established horses, and it wasn't that many years before the horses got loose. Um, yeah, fa- so- actually, how many years ago we're talking, you know, 1492, so that's 1500. We're talking 500 years later, right? 
So horses have only been on the continent since the uh, since the Spaniards showed up for 500 years. Right. And how far did horses manage to spread in that time? Well, you know, by the 19th century, they were running wild in throughout the United States. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they they covered the face of the land. I mean, in North America, we have these you know Native American Indian tribes who think of themselves as like you know the people of the horse or whatever, and they've really only had horses for about four or five hundred years, but it has become ubiquitous. And like you say, massive herds of wild horses throughout the Midwest and and all over the North American continent, and all the way down to the tip of of Argentina and Chile. You know, it just seemed like once horses showed up with the Europeans, they covered the face of the land. Everybody was using horses. Everybody wanted horses. Every country of of North and South America has got people using these horses. Now, I got to ask, why could there have been horses for a thousand years of Book of Mormon time or 600 years or whatever we can document from the words of the Book of Mormon? And that didn't happen. And I think that that right there is is one of the the greatest um, evidences against the Book of Mormon in terms of what I thought of when I was reading this book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, is that this book describes effects of crops. It describes the effects of having different types of animals. And those effects we would expect to see in any people that had those and it's completely absent from Americas, from the Americas before the Spanish show up. So, you know, go ahead. Well, one point is that, you know, the, the horses that made it down to, um, you know, Argentina, they probably didn't get there by, you know, crossing through the jungles and the Amazon and the Andes. I mean, they were carried down there on ships, right? The, the horses that got down there, they couldn't cross the geographical barriers, barriers from Mesoamerica. Uh, but And that's another important point that Jared Diamond brings up again and again, is that there are geographical barriers that inhibited um, plants and animals from spreading to certain places, like south of sub-Sahara Africa. Um, the, the people who lived in you know the jungles of Central Africa, they couldn't just pick up horses and cows from Eurasia because of, of climate and geographical issues. Um, but that brings up another point, is that if Lehi and company carried plants that were adapted to a growing season in, um, in Israel, if they carried those plants to Mesoamerica, there's no way that they would ever get a crop. Well, let's give voice to our Meldermites out there. That the Book of Mormon doesn't necessarily argue that it happened in Mesoamerica. That's a later, oh, that's yeah. a later yeah. image. So, um, you know, I, I think the Book of Mormon... Well, more that less... explains why the uh, Native Americans were so quick to pick up on horses. Yeah, yeah, could be. So, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, so basically, that. the growing season, the, 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 the crops, and sort of the adaptability of the things that the Lehites and the Jaredites and whatnot would have brought with them would probably only have been suited for either a temperate climate or a hotter climate, but probably not both, and so forth. Yeah. Okay. They could have gone to California, right? Because California was a Mediterranean climate. That, <laughs> that would have been okay. Maybe but, that's maybe that's where uh, the Nephite civilization happened. I, I think that though that is a good point. That's why the um, limited geographic, the the Mesoamerica f- faction likes Mesoamerica, because likely if they did have barley and horses and whatnot, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have thrived. So. Um, 
you know, that's a good argument for going down into a mess America and getting absorbed. But I don't think it jives right. well with the text of the book. All right. And just uh, for the reference here, uh, the seeds are mentioned in First Nephi, where it says, uh, the first thing when they arrived at the promised land, it says, it came to pass that we did begin to till the earth and we began to plant seeds. Yea, we did plant all our seeds into the earth, which we had brought from the land of Jerusalem. And it came to pass that they did grow exceedingly. Wherefore, oh. we were blessed in abundance. Wow. What a miracle. They must have been yeah. blessed in abundance. I, I, yeah, see, that's the first thing they did. So I, I guess if you want to be the next Rodney Meldrum uh, in the church, you've got to figure out exactly which parts of North and South America have a climate which is approximately the same as what existed in ancient Israel back in 600 B.C. Hmm. That's, a, that's a real insight. Good point. I wow. Mean, yeah. It's got to be California. That's that's, that's, the be. Mediterranean, that's the Mediterranean climate in the North in the Americas. Yeah, but you, by you know, the way, go ahead. No, I was going to mention there's something else. You know, the horses. You could argue that um, you know they, the horses are expensive to keep up, and they take a lot of a lot of organization. It's something we might want to bring up a little bit later. But they mention that they tilled the ground. You know, following Diamond's thesis, I can't imagine a society that had a till one year and a few years down the road had abandoned that technology. That's such an advance over the production of crops that it doesn't make any sense for a society to lose that, that technology. And it's mentioned right there in the first verse that they tilled the land. Well, you know, it it could, it could happen, you know, but what would be the consequence of that happening? They would, they would be a less, um, they, they would basically be losing an advantage that they had and they would be overtaken by other tribes that had, that kept the advantage. Actually, this this leads into this next point that I wanted to discuss. Um, you know, the the Chapel Mormons typically believe that the Lehites pretty much covered the face of the land, right? You know, North and South America, everybody who was here was like a descendant of Lehi or something, right? That's the, sort of like the the naive Chapel Mormon view, right? I mean, probably I don't know. Did you guys all grow up with that particular view? Because I sure did. Yeah, I did. Roughly. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we have the LGT, right, which stands for Limited Geography Theory. This is sort of this modern Book of Mormon apologetic, which reduces the Book of Mormon people to a very small geographical area. The usefulness of the LGT is that you can always say, well, we just haven't found it yet. It's so small that it wasn't included in all these other groups that we found, and it's so small that we can't pin down any particular place and say that's where it had to be and so forth, and it's just really small, you know, just a a small number of people. And my, you know, this whole main thesis here is, go ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, to be fair, I mean, most of these LGT theories do actually pin down a specific area where the river is just right and, you know, et cetera. Like Sorensen has a a piece of Mesoamerica that he, you know, that he thinks is just right. Um, You know, Larry Polson has an area that he thinks is just right. So they do kind of pin it down. But they're but they're very small, right? Yeah. And they will, and and I think the apologists will argue that if if it was small enough, and if only the Lehites had horses and nobody else did, then if the Lehites died and killed all their horses, then you you might not expect to find um, 
any evidence of it or, or if they killed their, you know, their cows or their wheat or something. But my whole point, and I think this is, is one of the things I took from Guns, Germs, and Steel, is that once you're cultivating wheat and barley using cows like oxen pulling plows, like, like, uh, like Jonathan points out, they tilled the earth. Once you're producing food on that scale, there's really only one consequence, which is almost inevitable, which is massive growth. The society becomes huge. It differentiates. They get the ability to have artisans. And we know that this is described in the Book of Mormon. They had metalsmiths. They had people who, who were laborers who were able to build cities and temples. They had a complicated government. All of these things are consequences described in Guns, Germs, and Steel of moving from a hunter-gatherer society into a food-producing society, and especially when you add in horses and oxen and cows and stuff like that to the mix, it just explodes. So I just don't see how you get a limited geography theory working and keep it limited over a thousand years of history with food production and cows and horses. I, I think it, it's the limited geography theory becomes just totally impossible. You, you couldn't possibly contain that society into a limited enough geography to, you know, to, to accomplish what the apologists are trying to do with it. Well, the other weird thing is that you have, uh, you know, all throughout the, the Book of Mormon, you have the contention with the Lamanites. So it's not just a matter of, you know, the, the crops and the horses and the weapons. It's, you know, well, what's the other side doing? How did it not get so lopsided for the Nephites or whoever had this technology that it was still, you know, that you could have any kind of warfare or a battle and if, if the Lamanites had this as well, then that just compounds the problem. Actually, you know, John, Jonathan, you just described something. It just occurred to me for a, a moment ago. The Book of Mormon has it completely bass-ackwards, right? The Nephites were small in number. The Lamanites were very vastly more numerous in number, right? Okay, am I reading the Book of Mormon correctly in this? There was always a lot more Lamanites than there were Nephites. I, I think. Well, I think an apologist would argue that the Lamanites took over the the Nephite cities and in so doing adopted their technologies. However, well, uh, I, I, you do have a good point. When in, later in the Book of Mormon, you have the Gadianton robbers when they become very big and are supposed to be living in the trees, but there's tens of thousands of them, and and you're and and that they come and surround the the, the Nephite you know, villages, and I, you have an excellent point that according to the thesis of, of Diamond, I mean, that just wouldn't happen. The Nephites would dominate them. Um, Numerically. Absolutely. I mean, according to Diamond's thesis, any or group that had that was producing food by tilling the earth with horses and cows and stuff would numerically have exploded and dwarfed a population of hunter-gatherers. And if I read the, the Book of Mormon as, you know, the, 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 the Lamanites were filthy and indolent and lazy and they weren't hardworking farmers like the Nephites and they just went around and hunted wild beasts and stuff, how in the heck did the Lamanites get so vastly more numerous than the Nephites? It's just completely wrong. Well, it, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Seth, would it be, could I appeal to J.R. Tolkien and say, well, you know, the elves, they had high technology, but they didn't reproduce very quickly. While the orcs, on the other hand, were indolent and wicked, and they reproduced very quickly. 
<laughs> yes, yes, you may. Uh, yes, yes, you may appeal to J.R.R. Tolkien. I, I think exactly. The Book of Mormon is just as true as the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, I mean, I, may I, I appeal to uh, Star Wars and suggest that Lamanites may have had a cloning operation? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think there's a real problem here. You know, we forget, it in terms of our modern warfare, what it takes to marshal 10,000 troops. And um, and the Book of Mormon mentions 10,000 many times. It takes a sophisticated, sophisticated society to be able to do that. Um, and it's just not something that hunter and gatherers can do, that you just can't get that many troops together, not for any sort of reasonable amount of time. Um, it, it's It's just... It's just impossible. The sanitation alone um, takes a huge amount of organization to have ten thousand people even in close proximity to each other. So, so it just doesn't bear in any sort of reality in terms of the size of battles. Even I don't know before the middle of the the Middle Ages. Yeah, well, go ahead. I think a sophisticated apologist uh, would appeal to you know the Middle East and say, look. You know, the Israelites were a small civilization and they were surrounded by the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And that's maybe more what things were like in uh, the Book of Mormon world. It wasn't, you know, civilization against hunter gatherers. It was civilization against civilization, really. And probably well, whoever, probably Joseph Smith had that in mind when he crafted the Book of Mormon. Except I think there's evidence that Joseph Smith was looking at the the Indians with their loincloths and their, you know, small-time society and stuff that they had and kind of thinking, okay, those are going to be my Lamanites, you know what I mean? And he was sort of yeah. using these Indians as his model, not like the Assyrians who actually had, you know, food production. Well, you know, you large, know, large scale wheat fields and whatnot. And, and I, the, the, I, go ahead. No, I see your point. I, I think, you know, I think, I think Joseph Smith was sloppy and he, he did a little of both. And that kind of allows apologists to say what they need to say. <laughs> well, I, but I, I still think I, I want to go back to something in this same theme and, and sort of Diamond's thesis and, and, and um, Seth, you mentioned a little bit ago um, artisans. Let's take something like a chariot. Chariots are mentioned in the Book of Alma, and they're mentioned again in Third Nephi, and they're mentioned in terms of the king having them and getting ready the horses and the chariots. To have chariots, you now, now people have pointed out that the, in Mesoamerica they had little um, clay toys that had wheels on them, but they they apparently didn't use any. Um, any sort of cart. And apologists use this to say, see, there's evidence that there was, there were carts there. But it's a whole technological leap from making a clay wheel for a toy to making a, a, a wheel that can carry a load. So to have chariots, you have to have wheelwrights. You have to have the technology to build an, an axle. Um, you have to have horses. Horses, by their nature, don't run into battle. You have to have very, very sophisticated horse trainers to to train them to do that. You have to have the bridles and 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 all all the gear. You have to have people who are who can run those. What I'm saying is, you have to have this cone of all these technologies and all these artisans and all these trades um, that the tech, the Book of Mormon demands existed. And the key, and I think where we, the Book of Mormon really runs afoul of Diamond's thesis is that all this stuff just disappeared poof. 
Not that we can't find horses, but we can't find bridles. We can't find horseshoers. We can't find, you, you know, you can still find Roman ruts from their chariots um, around um, Europe and Asia. You can't find any of this stuff. And so you, from Diamond's argument, you have these, these things that society builds upon and they've all just gone. They've all just disappeared completely without a trace. And and it, and it and it takes a certain size of society to be able to spare enough food to have those artisans as like a class of people that are consuming food but not contributing to the food production, right? And hunter gatherers can't do it because there's just not enough calories to be gathered in most places to be able to have like a dedicated artisan class off doing all this stuff, you know, <laughs> making the chariots and, and the horseshoes and, and training the horses and whatnot. It's just. I don't know. I don't think the limited geography theory is dead in the water because of horses, cows, and wheat. That you simply cannot have a limited society with those technologies without it exploding. And so I think that limited geography is dead in the water just on that basis alone. I think some well, proponents of the limited geography might suggest that Book of Mormon events took place in a limited geography, but that doesn't mean the people and the technology and the civilizations were limited to that geography. That's a good point. Um, but so, but if the technologies were spread out, we should we should have found some evidence that those technologies existed. Exactly. One of the advantages of limited geography is that it makes it so small that it explains away the lack of of evidence. You know, so you, you can't have it both ways. And, and in terms really, of so uh, small, I mean, think about this for just a moment. I don't know if you guys have ever run into the articles where some like archaeologists found like a few grains of some ancestor species that might have been domesticated into barley at some Indian campsite in the Midwest someplace. And they say, see, we found our barley. Check that one off the list. And then, you know, Dr. Peterson comes up with some article that he thinks says that there was some, a horse bone found in some pit someplace and say, oh, well, we found a horse bone. Check that one off our list. And the problem is that the effects of having cultivated barley and of, of domesticated horses would have been so huge that it would have gone well beyond just can we find a bone in a pit. It would have been what would the society, what would, what that would, what that would have done to the whole society that possessed those things. And, and, and there's just so much that that would have meant to the society that you can't hide that. You, there's, there's simply no way you can cover up all that evidence and say, well, they had horses and it did all this to the society, but then it completely disappeared. Oh, but we have a horse bone in a pit someplace. That's just completely bogus. So, so anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate for a little bit. I think the more modern apologists these days would argue that there really wasn't any cattle. There really wasn't any barley. These were 19th century mistranslations that Joseph Smith was, was putting his own spin on things that when he had his hat in the, in, in, then he had his face in the hat. He wasn't necessarily translating word for word, but he was translating these impressions or these stories that came into his mind. So, those were just his misreading. He didn't understand what he was doing. So you're arguing on the basis of like tight translation versus loose translation? I, I think you would have to have loose translation at this point. I mean, I mean well, there, there's, yeah, there's two fatal flaws with that theory. Uh, the first one is that um, 
obviously with all the proper nouns and the kirloms and the kumams, obviously there was a mechanism in the translation process to accurately convey what the name of something was. So, something that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known, yeah, so like a if, kumam if, or a kirlam. Right, so when he came to a spot in the text where it was an unknown word, somehow they were able to uh, convey that. And, you know, there's indications that he could spell it letter for letter or whatever. But, uh, you know, so then we have to figure out, well, why could he do it for some things but not others? The second problem is you hear people argue, oh, and, you know, if you look at history, sometimes, you know, someone would see a hippo and they didn't know what it was and they'd call it a water horse and, uh, so maybe Nephi saw something and he didn't know what it was, so he called it a horse. Well, the problem with that is that you have, as we pointed out before, hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, people calling this thing a horse. So at some point, whatever word Nephi used when he first saw this thing, it stops meaning horse in English and it starts meaning tapir or llama or whatever it is. So whatever process or whatever thing was doing the translation, whether it was God or Moroni or the Holy Ghost, that, you know, that entity had to know by the time you get to third Nephi, when you see that word on the plates, that's not an English horse. It's this other thing that Nephi saw. So maybe the first time Nephi said it, it was, you know, horse would be correct. But then the meaning of that word gets changed. And any translator after that would have to know, well, even worse, you know, Mormon and Moroni and everybody else, they didn't know what a horse was. So there's no way they could mean horse. So that's why I don't. So to summarize, I think uh, it's really a long shot to say that the word horse in the Book of Mormon means some other animal. Well, I think I think the ultimate... Uh, trump card of the apologist is, is to say the Book of Mormon is inspired folklore. And Joseph Smith, you know, he made up the word Kirilam and Kumam. He made it up, maybe. Maybe it wasn't something he saw in the stone. Um, but it's, you know, it still reflects something that really happened. We can find traces of Hebraisms that he couldn't have known about. And that's evidence that he was inspired. Uh, there's one more thing I wanted to discuss which is when talking about the evidence for wheat and barley, um, apologists might say, well, we just shouldn't expect to have the kind of evidence for what they were eating, you know, 2,000 years ago, and maybe they were eating wheat and barley, and we just don't know it. And I think the book Guns, Germs, and Steel contradicts that by providing ample evidence for other foodstuffs. Um, Jared refers to this trinity of foods, uh, corn, squash, and beans, that were pretty much, you know, staples on the American continent amongst different uh, civilizations until the, the uh, Spanish arrived and brought with them the wheat and, 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 and other um, foodstuffs. And there was ample evidence for when corn first, when and where corn was first domesticated and squash and beans and how many hundreds of years it took to go from point A to point B. He even has mathematical estimates in there of like the number of year of, of miles per year. The knowledge of domesticating these three plants traveled throughout the Americas from right where it started to, you know, the way it was at the time the Spaniards came. So I think that if there's 
tons of evidence that describe the food situation going back a couple thousand years for these, then we would actually expect to see evidence if wheat and barley had, had also been there, and we simply don't. Otherwise, in the chapter on the foodstuffs available in the Americas here, you know, Jared Diamond would have been talking about wheat and barley, and he, he never does. What yep. do you guys think about that? Um, I, I, I'll, I'll respond to that. Um, you know, Hugh Nibley famously said something to the effect of, we shouldn't be looking for the Book of Mormon in the New World. We should be looking for the Old World in the Book of Mormon. Of course, that's what he liked. So, you know, he talked about all, all the, the evidence of, of things that he could find in the Book of Mormon that showed a, um, that showed a Old World origin. Um, so that showed, showed an old, old World origin. But I, what I would argue is that, you, you need to be able to find America somewhere in the Book of Mormon. And it's basically not there other than a 19th century interpretation of it. Yeah, you know, where are the, the, the llamas? Where is the, the maize? Where is the, um, uh, you know, parrots or jungles or, or, or any of that stuff that we would the, expect? The names with X's in them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I was watching this thing on the Maya, you know, recently, and we have a very, um, robust archaeological record of things that were going on at the at the time and none of that stuff shows up now there's pretty good descriptions of the iroquois and the way that they you know painted their heads red and shaved their head and wore loincloths and stuff like that which are the indians that joseph smith would have had contact with but uh, as far as mesoamericans from 2000 years ago um not, not a lot of evidence of that in the book of mormon so why is it that Jared Diamond is able to paint a picture of the American continent as one where people ate corn, beans, and squash and cultivated it by hand and didn't have horses and cows and all the, and so forth and, and, and really sort of describe in detail how these foodstuffs, you know, did migrate around the continent? How do you deal with the fact that that the Book of Mormon says they had wheat and cattle and horses. I mean, do you really think that there's any way that apologetics can can excuse away guns, germs, and steel and what it actually, has to say about Americas? Actually, this uh, the book came up in a discussion about Noah's flood in last uh, April over at the uh, the Mormon Apologetics and Discussion Board, and one of the uh, uh, one of the defenders of the faith said. And so this, I, I think we can take this as their official response. He said, I've read it. I think Diamond overworks his position, and he is more than obviously irreligious. More than obviously irreligious? Yes. So there you go. I would, res- I would respond to that and say, just the facts, you know, <laughs> just the facts, please. And I think Jared Diamond did a very good job of laying out just sort of like the historical evidence or the, I don't know what you want to call it, the archaeological or anthropological or whatever evidence, he's making a point about food production and what food production meant for the development of civilizations. He's not even talking about religion per se. Um, you can call him irreligious or whatever you want, but his whole topic is is really not religious-oriented at all. It's just what did food production and the available foodstuffs, what impact did they have on the development of civilizations? That's not even a religious question, so I'm not sure what the person at MAD was was getting at. I, I mean, you can't read Jared Diamond's book and say, this guy's a raving anti-Mormon. 
You know what I mean? Because he doesn't even talk about it. All of his book is is damning of Mormonism. It's also damning of the Quran. It's damning of the Old Testament. It's damning of any type of religious history that has the earth, you know, the human beings coming about seven thousand years ago, um, you know, in the Garden of Eden or whatever, and this great flood. I mean, he's 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 only by implication against religion in the sense that he paints a picture of the world that's that contradicts all the religious histories that we have. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't get into that. But, you uh, know, my favorite thing. Yeah. Go ahead. My favorite thing about it actually is, is that he, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. You're good. Okay. Is that he's actually very explicit about what he's arguing against. He's arguing against the idea that there are, are inherent biological advantages uh, in some societies over advantages over the Australian Aborigines. That's what he's arguing against. That whether he you're doesn't white, have anything to say about that whether you're white has nothing to do with it. What? Whether whether you've got a god on your side has nothing to Genetic, do with it. Genetic, uh, you know. Um, egocentrism basically yeah you know what i what i think is the greatest thing about the book is i I meet a lot of religious people who don't understand um the basic science of how we know things you know how they don't understand basics of archaeology they don't understand the basics of of history and i don't pretend to be an expert on any of those things but the book is very um, wonderful in, in terms of plain language explaining to the the layman basically how we know certain things about different societies like how we know it's improbable that joseph smith or um, that nephi had a steel sword during the bronze age why that just doesn't work and i think that the book sort of lays that whole argument out as to where things happen and when they happen and after reading the book if you accept the basic premises you know then you you're not going to be able to accept things like the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark because the archaeological record and the necessity of progression of societies just doesn't lend evidence to it. Yeah. Um, have Have you guys got any evidence? I have one little story I'll tell you, but I'm wondering if you guys have any evidence that a book like Guns, Germs, and Steel or even, you know, this exact book actually did shake someone's testimony. And I'll, I'll hear your comments in just a moment, but I wanted to tell you a funny conversation I had. Um, a brother-in-law of mine called me up a few months ago, just out of the blue, and said, Dude, have you ever read a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel? And I just chuckled, and I was like, Yes, as a matter of fact, I have. And he told me that he had been reading the book, and he was, you know... He he's never heard of Mormon apologetic arguments or anything. He was pretty much his Mormon history was Chapel Mormon, and he's not exactly much of a scientist or anything like that. And he was really kind of shaken because it was sort of like one of his first introductions into this idea that there is a science of the world that lays out a picture of how things came about that's like vastly different than what the scriptures say. And I guess I mean we all take this for granted, but Apparently, he didn't know. And he read this book and was like, well, I don't see how the church can be true. You know, I don't see how the Book of Mormon can be true or the Bible or anything else if the world really did sort of develop along these lines. And, I mean, I have actually had that happen to me in my own family. I'm wondering if you guys have seen it yourself. 
Well, you know, Seth, you should have pointed him to Mormon scholars testify where he could find a Mormon scholar with a background in anthropology <laughs> who still believes in Mormonism. Yeah, because that would make it all go away. Well, that just there's there's people out there who are Mormons who know about this and they still believe. So, you know, how do they do it? <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know. That to answer your question on a, on a personal basis, I read the I read the book I think in about oh four, and for me I had slipped a lot of faith in the Book of Mormon, but it was the 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 death of my faith in the Book of Mormon after I read that the book. It, it, it's it's so so plainly devastating to the Book of Mormon that there's no way I think after reading it and, and following through with what Diamond argues that you can accept the Book of Mormon, on its face value. Now, we, we've, we've talked about some of the ways that people manage that here tonight, but I, I don't think you can come away with a literal belief in the Book of Mormon a, after understanding, you know, the archaeological, historical, anthropological, you know, whatever evidence there is out there. Exactly. In fact, I, I think the way I would sum it up is this. The book Guns, Germs, and Steel and other scientifically oriented literature We'll probably not say a single word about the Book of Mormon. I mean, the word Mormon never comes up on a single page of this entire book, but it describes a world which is simply incompatible with the Book of Mormon. And I don't want to say impossible, because we know, based on our conversations with the apologists, that almost anything is possible for some definition of the word possible. But it's simply not compatible. It, it, the, wor the world that the scientists describe is, is simply not, it just doesn't fit with what the Book of Mormon says happened or what, what the Old Testament says happened or whatever and, and what that would have meant in a real world. You know, in a real world with horses and oxen and domesticated wheat and stuff, it would have meant something. The book talks about what it would have meant. And when you look down in South America, you don't see it. There yeah, you go. I mean I'd say based on, uh, you know, what the, what the church publishes in the magazines and curriculum that, uh, it doesn't care. And, uh, from what I've seen from, uh, apologists, they're comfortable with, you know, whatever disparity that there might be. <laughs> exactly. Well, gentlemen, uh, thanks for the discussion. And, uh, the book is Guns, Germs, and Steel. The author's name is Jared Diamond. Actually, there's a subtitle, Guns, Germs, and Steel, The Fates of Human Societies, by Jared Diamond. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Mormon Expression. And as always, the discussion continues on the website, mormonexpression.com. Uh, Is that right, John? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All righty. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks. All right.